Welcome to the Radiant Podcast. I'm your host, Kelsey Chapman, and if there's one thing I believe, it's that you're capable of making your dreams a reality and that the world needs you to be living out your purpose. One thing I love is to chat with people doing impactful work in hopes that we can all learn something from the conversation. Not to mention, we get to apply all of that wisdom to our own journey. Each week, you will hear just that here at the Radiant Podcast. So without further ado, let's get to it. Welcome back to the Radiant Podcast, and this week we have my friend Alexia Vernon joining us. She is the author of the book, Step Into Your Moxie, Amplify Your Voice, Visibility, and Influence in the World, branded a moxie maven by President Obama's White House Office of Public Engagement for her unique and effective approach to women's empowerment. Alexia Vernon is a sought-after speaking and leadership coach to female and male executives, entrepreneurs, media personalities, and change makers who want to spread their ideas positively impact people's lives, grow their businesses, and advance their thought leadership. A renowned women's empowerment speaker, Alexia has committed her life to showing women how to step into their moxie. Guys, I felt like this conversation came at such the right time for me. I truly loved getting to know Alexia, and it just felt like one of those divine appointments. I'm really glad I met her, and I know you're going to love this conversation just as much as me. If you love it, screenshot the episode, tag Alexia and I in your Instagram stories and tell us what you loved. We want to see. It gives us great feedback on who's listening because we do want to get to know you and it helps spread the word about the Radiant Podcast. So again, screenshot this episode and tag us in your Instagram stories. We want to see who of you out there are listening and what you loved about the episode. Now, before we dive in, I do want to tell you We just launched a Radiant shop. I don't know if you love the Radiant podcast as much as I do, but I bet if you're listening, you'd love some Radiant apparel. And we've got that for you. We've got hats, sweatshirts, pop sockets, journals, you name it, we've got it. So head on over to shopradiant.co and get to shopping and grab you some Radiant gear. Anyways, let's get to it, guys. Let's dive into this episode. Hey, Alexia. Hello. I am so glad to have you joining me today. I think we're going to have so much to talk about and really uh, selfishly, I'm so excited to learn from you. I would love for you to start by sharing your story, who you are, what you do, um, and how you work with women and men across the nation. You bet. I am possibly the least likely person to be doing the work that I'm doing in terms of supporting people, specifically a lot of women, to be able to, as I like to say, step into their moxie, to be able to unapologetically walk into any room, or in many cases, as a speaking coach, I work with people who want to speak on stage and speak up and out for the ideas and issues for their business, the things that matter most to them, and know that when they speak, they not only have unshakable stage presence, but that they're able to call people to actually take action. And and the reason I say that I'm the least likely person is because for over a quarter of life, I had a tremendous fear of public speaking. Like I was that kid who would get the shakes, who would speak sweat profusely, whose voice quavered, who'd have what I now know in hindsight was a panic attack. And even though I wound up starting my career as a speaker pretty early on, so I entered the Miss Junior America competition when I was a college freshman, and I won. And as a result of that was thrust onto the speaking circuit, talking to youth in elementary schools and middle schools and high schools and after school programs. 
and found that I had this ability to turn on, but what was going on inside was a whole different story. Like I still felt like I was always on the brink of unraveling that I was, and I was constantly beating myself up as a speaker and all of that didn't really change, um, until about a decade ago. So after college, I wound up working for a nonprofit educational theater company, leading professional development for youth development professionals and for teachers and for social workers, which is a fancy way of saying I supported those who were in the adult learning space to be able to use drama strategies and techniques to work with their populations. And a lot of the work that I did was training and facilitating. And I was okay in that regard because it didn't require that I memorize a bunch of things in advance that I was on. It meant that all I needed to do was hold really powerful space, ask provocative questions, share stories, and mirror back what I saw being said and tell the truth which ironically are all the things that make someone really fantastic on stage, yet I had been creating this real disconnect. So when I would get on stage, I would hide behind fancy pants slides. I would give lots of research that was never my own. I would tell stories to evoke a laugh, but there was really, my skin was never in the game. I was petrified of being vulnerable for fear that people would call me out mentally, if not literally, for failing to be enough of whomever I conjectured they wanted me to be. Then, when I left uh, that work, hung out my own shingle as a coach, I spent a number of years being a little bit all over the place. Sometimes I was a career coach, sometimes I was going into organizations, talking about the four generations in the workplace, but given the speaking background I had, I kept being asked to speak. And then I had the opportunity to be the closing keynote speaker at a prestigious social enterprise conference. And I got there a little bit early in time for the participants pitch fest. Each of the approximately 100 people in attendance had a couple of minutes to present their big idea for how to harness entrepreneurial solutions to solve a big social, economic, or environmental problem. And the pitches were outstanding, bold, well-researched, full of heart. The finalists of this pitch fest were voted on by the other attendees. The average age was probably 25. The room was 50% female, 50% male. And I share these details with you so that you can appreciate why when the finalists' names were announced, I was stunned because every single one of them was a dude. (laughs) In this room full of approximately 120-somethings, not one woman's voice was picked. So I started to ask whoever would speak to me in the time that I had between this debacle, in my opinion, happening and me going on to give the closing keynote speech. Like I just asked, what happened? Where are the voices of our young women? And what I heard was shocking, a little sobering and changed the trajectory of who I was on stage as a speaker and made me realize I needed to go 100% into speaking coaching. Both the young men and the young women actually gave very similar answers. They said they picked on who was the best pitcher or speaker, who took up space, in other words, when they spoke, who had a lot of volume, projected confidence, 
what we would call a more masculine model of delivery. And yet when I asked, who are the speakers that you feel most connected to? Whose ideas you would champion, if you could, that you yourself would want to fund? And what I heard again and again and again were names of the women. Of course, I asked why, and they said, well, the women were vulnerable. They told stories, and I understood why they were connected to the issue or to the cause they were discussing. They facilitated trust. They were humble. In some cases, they would even admit, these are the things I feel like I need to learn, I want to learn, before I should accept funding. Yet none of that was deemed to be good speaking or pitching. That whole experience was profound, not only because I would go on to go completely off script and give a completely different keynote than what I intended and really speak from my heart and stop worrying about, am I smart enough? Am I funny enough? Am I credible enough? And simply speak to the people who are in the room. But because I also realized that I had been in this weird liminal space between the guys and, and the ladies. And what I mean by that is, I also had bought into this stereotype that there is one way to be a magnetic speaker on stage, which tends to skew a little bit more masculine. And if that's your style as a woman, for example, then cool. But I'm not somebody who should be fist pumping and dancing to music. Like I can be goofy, but I'm also like a scrappy introvert. That wasn't me. But at the same time, I was doing more of the diminishing female things, not the cool things like telling powerful, vulnerable stories. I was doing the part where I was apologizing, sometimes literally, or I would over-contextualize and say, well, I think it's this way, or I feel it's this way, or I don't know. I wasn't understanding how to integrate the masculine and the feminine in an authentic way that was of service to an audience. And so... Once I realized, oh, I know how to do all of this stuff. I just haven't been doing it. And I gave myself that evidence by speaking in a different way at that event. That's when I realized I want to completely pivot my coaching and training business, focus on speaking. And that's all she wrote a little over a decade ago now. Wow. Okay. I took so many notes and have so many questions. Yes, So you perfectly describe me when you say you turned on when it was time to speak, like no one would know what's going on inside, but how did you overcome that feeling of a pretty much a panic attack um, of just like you're dying inside during your delivery? I mean, how does one work through that? Because I'm sure you also see that time and time again with people who come through your programs or people you walk alongside. I think this is a super relatable question for any listener we have because, you know, They might not even feel like they turn on. They might feel like everyone can see they're crumpling. But I'll say I definitely, like no one else would know what I'm going through inside. I can turn on work room, but it costs me so much energy that I just avoid it. (laughs) I really understand. And I've never worked with anyone. I've worked with directly with, or I've worked directly over the years with hundreds of people. When you throw in all the group training stuff, it's in the thousands. I've never had anyone who's honest tell me that they don't experience any stuff, and I'll define stuff in a moment, that comes up around this. For some people, it's when they are on stage. For others, it's actually, they're, they've mastered, whether they're aware of it or not, like they've 
sometimes hacked their way into the solutions for making it work in front of an audience, but where it comes up for them is pitching speaking gigs or negotiating their speaking fee or discovery calls with event organizers or potential clients that come from speaking. Like it shows up somewhere. And what I've realized through my own journey and supporting other people is that one of the biggest pivots that we can make that will have powerful impact is not labeling that stuff that comes up fear. Like if you are about to step on a scorpion, I live in Las Vegas, so that can happen, (laughs) or you're confronted with a snake or a saber-toothed tiger, like I'm all about labeling that fear, run, get out of the way. But whenever we're on the cusp of doing something big or saying something big, frequently, if we really care, we're going to feel like there's a colony of butterflies flapping their wings in our stomach or in our throat. And that's a good thing. It means we are stepping into our moxie. We're playing to our edge. And the last thing we want to do is label that fear, give ourselves a hall pass to play small or to posture or do anything else that's mucky. Rather, we want to start by expressing gratitude for it. And I'm sure there's some of you who might be listening who are like, really, Lex? Like when I feel like I want to vomit my mouth, you're telling me to be grateful? And I really, really am because stories are not only powerful on stage, they're powerful in terms of our own internal communication. And when we can observe what's happening, refer to it as, ah, some sensation going on. That's my favorite word for it. It's sensation, it's objective and not create a problem out of it. Then we can start to layer on some of the other tools to transform it so that it's actually something that serves us. The the second thing we can start to do is recognize that if we are feeling a lot of sensation, the best thing we can do is get our blood flow moving. So while I'm totally down with meditation and visualization, sometimes we try to meditate our way out too early. So I will recommend to people if they're practicing, for example, a presentation that they're about to give, that they actually get up from behind their computer screen and they get their heart rate up, go for a run, hop on a trampoline, do something on your yoga mat that's a little cardio-esque. Then once the blood flow is moving, take some time to do a visualization, a meditation, whatever it is, because then you can come back to that place of calm. Same thing if you are at an event where you're going to speak, you can still have a physical pre-performance ritual. If you don't have the space to walk outside and go for a light jog, maybe even go to a bathroom stall and you do some jumping jacks. We can always give ourselves an opportunity to get our heart rate up the right way so that then when it comes time to speak, we're able to follow this next piece of advice, which is the minute you find yourself going into the am I enoughs, Am I smart enough? Am I funny enough? Am I pretty enough? Do I have a big enough list? All that stuff. Note your thinking about yourself, not about your audience. And I will still catch myself momentarily doing that stuff. We never completely get over it, I don't think. But if we can immediately observe it and then ask, how can I love up on my audience? How can I serve my audience? Then it helps us redirect to them And what I know for sure is when we are only thinking about speaking to the conversation in our audience's head, speaking directly to their hearts, there's no room for ego to get in the way and self-sabotage. Oh, that is good. I'm going to be holding on to these strategies. Man, that is good. So one thing you mentioned 
um, and that you talk about regularly are the three voices, critic, cop, and cheerleader in your head um, that undermine your confidence and make you doubt yourself. How do those emerge in a setting like this when you're speaking or really just in entrepreneurship in general? Great question. The critic is a voice that most of us probably are most aware of, and that's that you're not enough voice. The cop is another voice that, particularly for a lot of female entrepreneurs, is prominent, but until we name it, we can't reclaim it and do something with it. And so the voice of the cop is when we start to see everything through right or wrong. There's the right way to launch a brand and then everything else is wrong. There is the right way to give a dynamic presentation. Everything else is wrong. So you kind of get where I'm going here. It's always about it's black or it's white. And usually we think that there's only one way to be right. If everything else is wrong, when we find that we're doing a lot of cop-like talking to ourselves, we often get paralyzed because we're so terrified we may, might make the wrong decision. And we don't see the gray, underutilized space between black and white. The third voice, and I bet some of you can relate to this one, uh, is the voice of the cheerleader. And at first, the cheerleader sounds amazeballs because she's so positive. She's telling you to go harder, go faster, dream bigger. But the problem with her is she might say something like, it's totally cool that you are working 12 hour days and that you are sleep deprived and you can feel a virus coming on even though you have a big event that you have to lead. One day afterward, you will take a vacation and then you can catch up. And the problem with doing the cheerleader stuff is if we don't just do it for like a short time to get through something that let's say is objectively difficult, but like that's our default voice, We get tired, we often get sick, we get nasty, and we often wind up burning out and not staying in the game. And so one of the things I talk about in the book, Stephanie or Moxie, and that I work with with my clients is introducing another voice into the mental menagerie. And that's the voice of the coach. And I would bet that some of you who are listening are coaches or consultants or experts, but I would ask you, are you actually using this voice on yourself or only with your clients? So when we bring in the voice of the coach, it disrupts the monologue we're having and turns it into a dialogue. The voice of the coach will ask a simple, easy to answer question. So for example, if we have a lot of critic stuff going on, the coach might ask, what's a moment where you were a rock star that you could tap back into right now? so that it reminds us of who we are and who we can be rather than who we're not. If we're doing a lot of cop stuff, we can bring in the coach by asking ourselves a quick, easy to answer question like, what does the third option look like? Or what is another possibility between A and C? You know, maybe we haven't found B yet. And if what we have is a lot of cheerleader stuff going on, we can ask ourselves a question like, What's something I can let go of from my to-do list? Or who can I ask for help? Or what's a boundary I need to set or reset? And when we start to reclaim the role of protagonist in our self-talk, turn our inner communication from being a monologue into a dialogue, that lays the foundation for us to be able to show up at 100% when we have an audience whether that's an audience of one that we're seeking to move to action or whether that is a room full of people who are seeing us on stage. 
Oh my gosh, this, we got to work together. This is amazing. So do you often see, as you were describing that, I, I'll unpack this because I think a lot of people will resonate. I'm sure that most people come in thinking they either have a critical voice or don't. That would be me. I would, I say all the time to my friends, I don't really have a negative self-talk. Like I, I don't really resonate with that critical thing, but I wonder, do you have a lot of people coming in through your doors to work with you in some capacity who are floating somewhere between the cop and the cheerleader, but don't realize that's a problem? Yes. I would say most people are aware that the critic can be an issue, whether it's like a one, two on a scale of to 10, meaning like if I'm doing something really new, it might come up, but it's not that bad, but I still feel like something's weird, but I don't know what it is. And oftentimes they're in the cop cheerleader space. So I did a book event um, a book signing to a couple days ago. And there was a, a woman who had shown up to this bookstore and she had said, right. As we were talking about this, you know, I, I feel like I do something, but I'm not sure if it fits into one of these classifications. She was a professor and I want to be careful not to give too many distinguishing details, but there are plenty of people in the world who are professors. So I think I'm good. Uh, and she'd said, I often find myself asking of myself, is this proper or is this legitimate? Is this sounding like the professional I'm supposed to be? And finding herself code switching, like, okay, if I'm in an academic environment, then I need to gussy up what I'm saying to be more serious and proper because she was on the younger side. And in many ways, that is a symptom of the coach. So policing ourselves is the key there. I also find that there are people who think that they're optimism is a superpower and it certainly can be, but they can't understand why they're on the cusp of adrenal fatigue. And not that I'm a health coach here, but I see that a lot that people are showing up to me on the brink of burnout because they have such a deep passion to serve. A lot of their stuff is coming up when they think about speaking and they don't really get it because they might be doing webinars or they might be doing podcasts, but that idea of actually having eyes on them, knowing that they're going to be seen brings up something unique that oftentimes when we start to do the deeper work, I can trace back and say, actually, it's some cheerleader stuff that's, that's at play here. Wow. That the cop and the cheerleader are so me. And I've, I've definitely been on the verge of adrenal fatigue at times. And, and actually, you know, before we hopped on was just talking about, you know, reworking my schedule and working, batching a lot of work on one day. So I have a lot of time and space to create and operate from a place of rest. The other days, because I, i I feel like there were some people put very specifically in my life to help me recognize those tendencies that would, you know, normalize 12 hour days. I actually um, was reviewing the first episode of the Radiant podcast recently. I think I needed to like rework an image on the, the podcast page or something like that. And I texted the girl and was like, what were we talking about? We were talking about working till 10 p.m. as if that was a normal thing and it was fine, you know, and I, I laughed because we were both in the early phases of our business and I think, you know, sometimes hustle is necessary in the beginning, but you could hear from our tone in that very first Radiant Podcast episode that we were just running hard and didn't see an end in sight for that season. We just thought it was normal because we were excited and optimistic, but it, it, it led, I know that she just publicly went through a burn burnout season. I have very much talked about my seasons of burnout and it costs you something. Not to go off too tangentially, but I'm so glad you brought this up because 
all that matters in the end is can we answer the question, is the way that I'm speaking or is the way that I'm working in this case working for me? And if your answer is yes, I'm a huge fan of don't let a coach, don't let anyone else tell you that something you're doing isn't healthy or isn't serving you because we know ourselves best. I remember right after my daughter was born, and there may be some mamas who are listening and can relate. I didn't have childcare at first. My husband traveled for work five to six days a week, and the only times that I could work were around her nap and her sleeping schedule. And I started to realize that if I worked during the naps during the day, I felt like I never got a break. And I quickly realized, you know, if she goes to bed at seven or eight at night, and bless her, she was a phenomenal sleeper. I would rather work three to four hours late at night and then keep my days free so that I could go sleep while she was sleeping. And if someone had come around and told me, you're not healthy because you're working at 10 p.m., I want to think that I would lovingly have told them back it up, but I may have said something a little bit more snarky. You know, like sometimes we got to do what we got to do. And if it's working for us, cool. But if we're recognizing that this isn't working or I feel like I'm tap dancing on eggshells, striving to be all the things to all the people and not honoring myself. That's always to me the clue that it's time to pivot. That is, that is so true because yeah, I think there isn't, you know, necessarily a right or wrong, wrong way, even, even in our conversation, you know, if 10 PM, I I think, you know, restructuring like you did in the case of the nap times is, is a healthy move at the time we were working, you know, 8 AM to 10 PM. And so I, I was like, what were we, what in the world? Um, but man, another little note I had taken when you were kind of sharing your story in the beginning, which really fits in with this kind of top descriptor is one big move I've been making in, in the last few months is being able to recognize all of the shoulds I've mentally built around my business. Like you said, there's only one right way to launch. Well, I realized that one right way that I thought to launch, you know, each new product was the only way and it was killing me. Or, you know, I had inquired about two workshops that I was certain I needed for my next level of success or whatever. And I got on the phone and and it was a, a season where I could, it was, it was this month, but it was one of the first times I was recognizing like a level of maturity in my business where I got on the phone with these people that I was probably willing to spend between eight and $15,000 with this year for my business thinking I really needed their, you know, intensive. I needed to go to their, their workshop and they, they started using this should language. And, and I was able to recognize, Oh, this is actually not my route. This is not the one ticket to success for me. And I think, you know, there's beauty in the, in the language of riches are in the niche niches, like niche down, niche down. You should do it this way. And yes, it's a very profitable route, but as you know, as a coach and an author and a speaker, I'm not going to chop off my right arm in order for my left arm to perform better. And so when people are telling you, or you're telling yourself, there's only one right way to do things, how do you navigate or help the people you work with navigate kind of stepping out of that mindset because it's really easy to fall into because you you look ahead at people in your industry, whatever industry it is, and you see, oh, these are the pathways to success. But often there's really a lot of pathways. Yes. Oh, preach, lady. Seriously. I found myself in that same really uncomfortable place 
right around the time my daughter was born, she's five now, where I got into the multiple six figures, low multiple six figures, and felt that like I need to want to crush it and move to the seven figures. And I was obviously moving at a much slower pace given how much time I was carving out to be able to work. I was starting to bring more things online. And yet I was watching a lot of my contemporaries who didn't have kids yet get to seven figures, but be miserable. And I see this a lot with the people who join my mastermind, who are coming to me, not just for the speaking support, but the strategic business support is that, like you said, there is this whole idea that we hit one milestone. We immediately move to the next without asking why. The second thing that often shows up is we are trying to build a business to keep up with the Joneses in our industry rather than building a business to fulfill our vision for a fulfilled, purposeful life. And around that time, I started to identify for myself, and this is one of the things I love people, love to support clients and friends and family to do for themselves too, is ask, like, can we take a step back and actually clarify how you want to be spending your days? Do you want to be managing a team? And there's nothing wrong if you do. Like I had a client who did a VIP day with me recently and she was like, I want to be a multimillionaire. She's at seven figures. She wants to go bigger and build a complete brand and a different type of business with brick and mortar attached. And I, as I listened to her, I was like, I can help you do that because I know how to ask the questions and I know who you need to be able to do that to expand your team. But like, that is not what I want at all. I want to be able to spend a week out of the month traveling with my family as much as my daughter's school will allow us to do before they'll hold her back. Um, <laughs> I wanted to retire my husband from working away from home five to six days a week so that we could build the business together. I wanted to be able to do juicy, amazing events with the same group of women over the course of the year. Like I really got clear, how do I, what do I want my life to look like? And then reverse engineer from that vision to build the business. And um, I'm happy to say my husband and I work full-time in the business together. We travel a lot with our daughter. Um, and there's ease. Like, I I don't feel like I have to be behind my computer screen every day. Like, I don't sugarcoat it and act like if I'm launching, I'm not, you know, working longer days than I might be right now where I have way more freedom to go get coffee with a friend, get a massage, whatever it is. But one of the things that I find often comes up when I start to ask those questions with people is I don't want to be tethered to all kinds of online systems and funnels and feel like the Facebook algorithm is running my life. And when we start to look at what people's profit goals are and the different pathways to be able to get there, one of the things that emerges a lot is actually you can make a grip of money <laughs> focusing on speaking as a as a revenue generator. When you look at all the different ways that you can speak, it's not just giving keynotes. It could be giving business uh, presentations to get people onto discovery calls for premium programs or VIP days. It could be retreats. It could be taking what you do and starting a corporate model or licensing people in your methodology and doing training for them that like we've got to stop thinking I get a, I'm a little preachy about this but that there's only one way to build a six-figure a multiple six-figure seven-figure business and that we go to somebody who's going to tell us to do exactly what they did rather than spending the time and the resources to make sure 
we're doing something that grows the life we want for ourselves, for our family, that lets us be the citizen we want to be in the world, and that what we're doing actually supports that. Ooh, that is good. Oh my gosh. So I feel like I actually had people kind of brought into my life in 2018 that really helped me reinforce kind of this concept of, oh, I I am in this to build a life. And I got into this industry because I am motivated by freedom and fun. And I was building a business that was a replica of what everyone told me I should be doing in this online business space with courses and masterminds and all the things. And I realized, oh, yeah, sure, you can build a seven-figure business, but you also might be spending almost seven figures to maintain it. And there's a lot of smoke and mirrors in our online space. We share vanity metrics with nothing underneath them to back it up of what it, it, what it cost us, maybe money wise or energy and lifestyle wise to achieve those. Um, And I felt like there were just some very specific people brought into my life to show me how to work from a place of ease. And that was really what 2018 was for me was just totally restructuring everything. How did you kind of step into that? that journey in your own space, because, you know, it is countercultural to our industry. Totally. It's also similarly being working with coaches and being a part of experiences with people who embody the values, even if their model looked different. There's a lot of people who've played that role. So when I first went online, I had the opportunity to be a part of Natalie Lussier's mastermind, which unfortunately she no longer does anymore. And that's where I learned a lot of the business and tech systems. But one of the things um, that I love about Natalie is that she always was very clear that even as she was scaling, she knew she wanted to be a mom and she was building a business that served her life. So that really stuck with me that while I was learning the online stuff, um, to just to have my filters on about what direction I wanted to go. I've worked with Natalie McNeil, who was great in terms of helping me really around the time I was launching my mastermind, think about the things that had worked to grow my business to where it was and not get stuck in how do you even launch and enroll for a mastermind. So I'm so grateful to her for all of her support there. And then um, more recently, Jonathan Fields and Pamela Slim are two people who've been in my life who, as somebody who often had coaches who either were a little younger than me or who weren't parents, having coaches who were best-selling authors, who were great coaches, but who also worked with their spouses and who had kids that were older was really helpful for me to make sure that I was also growing myself in the capacity I wanted to as a mompreneur. Like, I think that word is so cheesy, but I really mean it. Like, how do I integrate those two things together uh, with all of my decisions? But when you say that, you know, the smoke and mirrors, I, I realized too that when my husband left his full-time job and the buck stopped with me, I mean, with us, but ultimately with this business that like, I can't reinvest everything back because to be quite honest, I want to send my daughter to private school. We wanted to move into the bigger home. Like I needed a a legitimately net profitable business. And in many ways, I think that saved me from making the mistake of grow bigger, grow faster. Like I've said to a few people when they say, what's your big goal for 2019? I'm like to move into my house and decorate it and sustain the business I've built. I love it, but I don't need to have a year where I double my revenue because that's counterproductive 
to the lifestyle I'm trying to lead. Like when revenue is good, why does it have to like get better? Like there's a sense of, no, actually going to Hawaii twice in four months will make my life better than, you know, an extra 50 or 100K right now, truthfully. And then <laughs> there will come a season where I want to scale and grow again, and I will. I love that. I'm just loving our conversation so much. So tell us about your heart behind your book and how that kind of made its way into the world. You've been speaking and teaching for a long time, but how did um, Step Into Your Moxie come into the world? I always say that this work chose me. I didn't choose it. And in many ways, I feel like it's the same thing with the book. During a launch that was not going the way that I wanted (laughs) in, uh, what was it, December 2016, uh, going into early January 2017, I had big expectations, was doing the ads, you know, doing the whole thing. And I put a lot of pressure on myself at that point that, I wanted to hit a particular benchmark, wanted to do it during the early bird. And I apologize for those of you who are like, what are you talking about? I promise I won't get into too much launch speak, but like, I just had these strong revenue goals. I wanted to hit it during the beginning of the time I was enrolling into this program. And my thought process was that that will be a sign that it's time to bring my husband into the business in about six, seven months by the time our daughter's starting preschool. That was like really important to me. By that point, I did have a nanny because the business was doing really well part-time. And I knew that if I wanted to send her to school, I didn't want to send her to school and still have a nanny because that was, again, working against me wanting to be a really present mom. And then the launch, I could tell like pretty quickly during the early bird period. I mean, it was doing fine, but not where I wanted it to be. I'd hit a quarter of my goal at that exact same moment. My husband was told he'd been home for maybe six months, not traveling, that he was going to have to get back on the road again. And I just was starting to have a bit of a pity party. And I remember I'm a pretty faithful person praying to God and just saying, there's something I'm supposed to learn right now, and I'm not getting the lesson. I'm going to stop trying to force an answer. Like, just show me what you got. Work your way through me. And I started to have these dreams of the chapters for this book. Like I was definitely not looking for another project, but the dream started waking me up. So I sat down and I started writing the book proposal and within my math might be a little fuzzy, but I'd say 60 or 90 days, I'd had the whole proposal done just working at like random times when I had a little burst of an insight and felt like I could sit down and and, and take the time to translate that into words. And it was the whole process. And, you know, I know you're in the midst of writing your book, Kelsey, so don't like stick your hand through the computer and throttle me if this hasn't been your experience. <laughs> but it felt like it was such a reflection of the work I'd been doing for a long time that even if there were stories I hadn't told before, or, you know, the book tends, I've been told it's pretty funny. That was one of the goals to not make the subject of public speaking and communication so dang difficult. Um, But like, it just felt like it was full of ease every step of the way. Now, I don't want to say that the marketing always felt that juicy and amazing because, that was definitely trickier, but the part of like actually birthing the content of the book was one of the most joyful experiences of my professional career. 
Oh, I love that. I'm just hoping I'm, I'm, I'm in the pitching process. So I am hoping that it can be as joyful for me as it was for you. And I do find that often what we step into next is what we've really been taking that little step by step all along those very, um, simple, but defining moments where what kind of pours out of you, whether it's in the context of writing or really kind of pivoting into your next season and expressing of work. It's often something you've already been doing out of overflow. And it makes so much sense when you finally step into the fullest expression. Does, do you find that to be the case for you? Yes, totally. Um, and just to reiterate that when you give up your agenda and throw down some faith that the answers are going to come, even if they're cloaked in a way you didn't expect that that's when all the juiciness starts to happen. So I feel compelled to share the story with folks who are listening, given that now I know exactly where you are in the process, that after I finished the book proposal, I published a couple of books previously, one of them with an agent to a trade press because it was more of a traditional HR management book. And I knew that that wasn't the, the agent that felt right for this particular project. She just had a voice that was more reflective of where I had been rather than Um, really understanding where I had wanted to go with this book a number of years later. And one of my colleagues who was in a peer-led mastermind with me offered and did introduce me to her agent. And after some very positive feedback said, you know, I'm so sorry, you need to have the 50,000 email subscribers for me to feel like I can get you and me the book deal that's needed here. And I don't want to be negative. The project is fantastic, but I wouldn't waste your time going to any other agents because they're going to tell you the same thing. You need to hit 50,000 email subscribers or it ain't going to go anywhere. And To be super clear, there was a pretty big chasm (laughs) between where I was list size wise. I mean, it wasn't horrible, but it wasn't 50,000. I knew what that investment would be in ads to get the numbers there. And it just felt gross that like I would spend the next period of time just getting cheap opt-ins to get a book deal. And so I wasn't sure what my next move was going to be. Certainly, I knew there were lots of juicy self-publishing options, but for whatever reason, I'd done that before. I didn't do it smartly, but I'd done that with my very first book before the last one with the agent. Like, I just, that didn't feel right here either. So I, I took some time and said, similarly, show me what I'm supposed to do. And I started seeing all of these bunnies and it wasn't exactly Easter time, but I was seeing bunnies like in windows on purses, like in really strange places. One morning while driving to the airport to fly for a speaking gig, all these bunnies started to run across the street and it was like 3 a.m. in the morning, a time when bunnies should not be running across the street in a suburb. And then I got it because when I teach about feminine leadership, one of the archetypes I will often address is the image of the bunny, which represents what we do when we're being soft and we're not being persuasive. We're not asking for our worth. We're apologizing. All the stuff I talked about that I struggled with for a long time. And I was doing that around this book, which was about showing women how to step into their moxie. And what I mean by that is There was an agent who I was aware of, one of my very first mentors who 
is a big celebrity at this point, um, had worked with this agency, and I'd always done the once I get or have blank, then whatever book I'm writing at the time, I will reach out to this agency. And I said, you know, I've been following this particular agency for a very long time. Like I could probably do a CNN documentary on them. <laughs> they represent books like mine, albeit oftentimes with authors with bigger platforms. But I really think that this one agent in particular, he'll get my voice. And what do I have to lose? I'm going to query him. And so I sent my query letter and I mentioned why I thought it would be a good fit. I and mean, it wasn't lengthy. Like I chose the best reasons I could come up with to make the persuasive case. And I got a phone call back from him literally within two hours. And by the end of that phone conversation that we had right then, an offer for representation. And I share this because for those of you who are authors, and maybe you even need to hear this, Kelsey, when I said to him after he'd already asked, because obviously I didn't want to be diminishing when he said, you know, I'm going to send you the letter to fill out um, if you want to do this, like I'm all in. I said, okay, now that I know that the offer is on the table, I got to ask, you weren't concerned about my list numbers? He's like, yeah, they're kind of crappy, but it just means I have to do a better job selling the book. Like it was just a non-issue. And we can buy into other people's stories of what we need to, quote, be chosen. And I'm so glad in this instance that I didn't, because there's no doubt in my mind. If I'd had another few people tell me, um, list size, that although I'm a very tenacious person, I would have bought into that story that that's what was needed for me to have success. Whoa, that's a good word because I think, you know, I have, I, I have friends going through this process. I, you know, ended up getting to chat with a few agents when I was in a, in, in the process of querying. And I realized we can make this such a defining moment of our worth. And it's not true. You know, I had one agent say, you write in really short sentences. You're clearly a marketer, which will be great for marketing, but you need to write in long sentences for this proposal. Then the next agent said, you write really long sentences. <laughs> and so through that experience alone, in ways I can push back against who I perceive as the authority in a setting. And then in other ways, in a situation like that, I tend to, you know, adhere to whatever is expected of me to, uh, be a good girl. <laughs> and so in that case, though, I was faced with two polarizing opinions from both authoritative spaces. And so I had to realize, oh, this is not so much about the right or the wrong way, but but preference. And if we're connecting, and I thankfully ended up being able to work with someone where we, we felt so connected. I love Tawny, um, my agent, but, but it was one of those moments as was that conversation with someone I thought I needed to have that intensive with in order to take the next successful step in my business that sometimes it's all about defining and pulling out our essence and building that connectedness. It's not right or wrong or only one route to success. And I, I love that we've had this conversation today because even whether someone's writing a book or not, they can hear this um, for their business or their journey, developing their dreams and say, Oh, I can take a deep breath. Like if there's not only one route. And so yes. I, I loved this conversation and just thank you so much for your, transparency and your willingness to be candid because I think it's going to be impactful for so many people. I can't wait to share this episode. Alexia, where can people find you? Where can they find your book? I'm going to be putting it in my Amazon cart today. Um, 
Where can everyone find you, keep up with you, work with you? Tell us all the things. Ah, yes, all the things <laughs> at any given moment. Uh, certainly for people who feel like, oh, she was speaking a little bit to, to me or a lot of bit to me, and you want to pick up the book, it's Step Into Your Moxie. And I'm sure um, Kelsey will have links in the show notes, but you can find it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, most independent bookstores, um, where major books are sold. And if you do pick it up, you'll want to head over to stepintoyourmoxie.com because I've got some awesome book bonuses, including an on-demand masterclass on how to be more persuasive and do it in a heart-centered, juicy way. Then for folks who are wanting more information on the speaking side of things, particularly as an entrepreneur, how to use speaking strategically to grow the business that you want and still be a truly transformational speaker when you're on stage, I've got a digital guide called Nine, the, the word nine, ninemistakes.com. And um, it's about the nine mistakes that coaches, consultants, and experts typically make with their speaking and how to avoid them. And I always love to tell people, because everyone's always used to like the hustle, that it's an evergreen digital guide. I've got two programs. They open for enrollment um, twice a year. <laughs> They're both a very small group, and I work intensely. But, like, I'm not an overseller because, like, the guide just asks you at the end, do you want to be on the priority registration list? So if you want just some good content without feeling like you're going to hear from me for the rest of your life every day, um, you can check it out over at ninemistakes.com. Oh, I am excited. I'm so excited to keep up with what you're doing. And thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you again. Hey, don't go yet. I would love it if you go over to iTunes right now and leave a review. I love hearing your feedback and it really makes a difference in getting the Radiant Podcast name out there. And while you're at it, why don't you subscribe and then share this episode on Facebook or Instagram or wherever your social media platform is of choice. Lastly, I'd love to keep up with each other. Come find me on Instagram at Kels Chapman and let's get to know each other. Who are you texting? My therapist. You text with your therapist? Text, video chat, call. Yep, that sounds too easy. How did you find her? I just went to betterhelp.com slash save. She's a licensed therapist and it's all online. I connect when it's convenient for me and don't waste time driving anywhere. Plus it's affordable. I wonder if I should try it. It's great to talk to someone in confidence. She's helped me sort out quite a few things. And right now you save 10% off the first month when you go through betterhelp.com slash save. Betterhelp.com slash save. Got it. Save your most important documents and photos in the cloud. A Microsoft 365 subscription gives you a full terabyte of secure OneDrive storage, plus an added layer of protection with OneDrive Personal Vault. Buy now at Microsoft365.com slash photos.